Prime members, you can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning, a special Sunday morning that's all about having summer fun. As you can see, we've abandoned our New York studio for the Planting Fields Arboretum State Historic Park in Oyster Bay, Long Island. And this is Coe Hall, a mansion that even that fictional neighbor, the Great Gatsby, might envy. For some of you, the long weekend you're enjoying now got off to a flying start Thanks to a summer Friday, the growing workplace practice Connor Knighton will explore in our cover story. Happy Friday! In the summer, more and more companies are finding that giving their employees a little bit less of this and a little bit more of this can actually be good for the bottom line. At the end of the day, that creates a more loyal employee, a more engaged employee, and you get a really good return from it. If it was a Wednesday afternoon at this time, where would you be? <laughs> at work. <laughs> Summer Fridays, ahead this Sunday morning. Concerts, both indoors and out, are a big part of summer fun for music lovers. And the Isley Brothers have been providing soundtracks for our summers for more than 60 years. With Maurice Dubois, we'll give them a listen. It's your baby, do what you wanna do. Who else but the Isley Brothers can make music like that? Going strong, song after song, and sharing a lifetime of stories behind each one. 
I said something like, Paul, you guys are just wonderful. And he said, Ernie, if it were not for the Isley Brothers, the Beatles would still be in Liverpool. The Isley Brothers, later on Sunday morning. For most of us, bugs are the very opposite of summer fun. Still, they're a nuisance to be reckoned with. And this morning, Serena Altschul will be doing the reckoning. So, ooh. Oh, oh, gosh. What are these giant oh, bugs? These, these are just small tarantula hawks. They're huge. <laughs> Justin Schmidt is an expert on these flying nightmares, and he has a tip for anyone unlucky enough oh. to run into the business end of one. If you do get stung by a tarantula hawk, what do you recommend? Sounds very unscientific. I say, lay down and scream! <laughs> get ready to scream later on Sunday morning. Summer is a time for entertaining and good conversation. And when it comes to good conversation, few people have more experience than Dick Cavett. This morning, the talk show host is hosting our Lee Cowan. Hi, gang. <laughs> Dick Cavett's home on the eastern tip of Long Island is such a spectacular summer getaway. Even Katherine Hepburn threatened to sail over from her own beach home. Catherine Hepburn said, I'm going to come over there where you are. I think I'll phone. And I said, well, it's kind of a rough sail. I'm a rough girl. <laughs> <laughs> did she ever come? She never did do that, no. Watching the summer float by with Dick Cavett ahead on Sunday morning. With Mo Rocca, we'll sample some summertime food and drink. Lucy Kraft tries to beat the heat with some traditional Japanese fans. Martha Teichner looks at The Glass Castle, the summer film based on the best-selling memoir. Jim Gaffigan takes us boating and more. TGIF. Happy Friday. Next. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. A sea of green, a splash of blue, and a grand landscape for a gilded way of life. We're on New York's Long Island at a manicured estate of gardens, greenhouses, trees, and pathways all centered around a stately mansion known as Co-Hall. Henry Joyce is the executive director of the foundation that runs it. Planning Fields State Historic Park is a 400-acre park that was created by William Robertson Coe. He gave the park, it was his country house and his private garden, to the state of New York in 1955. William Coe, who built the house 100 years ago, made his fortune in insurance. His wife, May Rogers Coe, was the daughter of Henry Rogers, who, along with John and William Rockefeller, founded the Standard Oil Trust. Clearly, money was not an issue. It is as though Queen Elizabeth lived here in the late 16th century. It's big and glamorous. It's almost like a movie set of a house. There's the entrance hall, the great room, where the Coes would greet guests. There are also a few surprises. Coe Hall was completed in 1921 at the height of Prohibition. Hence, the secret bar. 
And he stocked up on massive amount of scotch and a lot of champagne, and no one even knew that there was a bar here. And while there's plenty to see inside Coe Hall, for many, the most stunning views are outside. Planting fields, an unusual name, but from the ground up, there's nothing strange about this spectacular escape. Coe Hall, not a bad place to spend the weekend. And what if you could start that weekend one day early? Our cover story is reported by Connor Knighton. The hands on the office clock always seem to move a little slower on a Friday afternoon, especially during the summer. Outside, it's gorgeous, and the last place anyone wants to be is stuck inside an office waiting for 5 p.m. to finally start the weekend. The last weekend, graphic designer Jim Desard kicked things off a little early. He just didn't show up on Friday. Instead, he spent the day at his summer home in Maryland, tinkering in his garage, building clocks instead of watching one. I love to be in my studio. It's, you know, borrowed time, if you will. It's, you know, I don't owe the office any more time that week. I don't owe my family, my friends. I can just go in my studio and create and just be me. Tassard wasn't playing hooky. He was encouraged to take the day off by Washington, D.C. architecture firm HOK. After working slightly longer hours Monday through Thursday, Dessard was able to take advantage of an increasingly popular perk, a summer Friday. Summer Friday is when companies let their employees leave early on Fridays during the summer. We've just seen a huge increase in the number of companies that are offering it. Brian Kropp is HR practice leader at research firm Gartner. Their recent survey of Fortune 1000 companies found that 42% offer some type of summer Friday, up from 21% just two years ago. The companies that have made the decision to give this benefit are giving it every summer because they see it's valuable. From Memorial Day to Labor Day, L'Oreal's headquarters shuts down at 1.30 p.m. sharp. The beauty company has been allowing its New York City employees to beat the weekend rush out of the city for the past two decades. It's a tradition that's thought to have started with Manhattan advertising and publishing firms back in the 1960s. But now, employers all across the country, everyone from Nike in Oregon to Mercury Marine in Wisconsin, have started offering a version of the perk. And it is not just out of the goodness of their hearts. What they found is by giving their employees a little bit of time back and giving them that gift of time, they like their employer much more. They actually become much more loyal, they work harder, they're more committed to their organization, and it really shows that their employer cares about them and wants them to have a great work-life balance. The worker bees in Erica Thumb's colony need tenting to, and it's a chore this landscape architect is only able to accomplish on her occasional Fridays off. I'm gonna take that day to weed the garden and check on the hives, see how the queens are doing, and pull some of the honey frames and do some extracting. Her hobby is honey. When she's back at the office in DC, she sits a few desks away from colleague Oliver Vranish, who uses his bonus hours to hang out with his little sister. What's this one? A banana. Bananas. One Friday at a time, he's been writing a children's book for her. And right about now, I'm sure many of you have started writing a why don't we get summer Fridays off email to your bosses, and that's kind of the point. I assume you have friends at, at 
other companies, other industries who don't have this perk. Oh yeah, I like to just brag it in their face all the time if I can. <laughs> Take a peek on Instagram and Twitter on Friday afternoons, and you'll see happy employees gloating about their bonus hours. It's a perk that can be used as a recruiting tool. The big idea here is that work-life balance has become so much more important for employees nowadays. It's one of the biggest reasons why people join one company. It's one of the biggest reasons why they quit their current company. Happy Friday! Perhaps no company loves Fridays more than TGI Fridays. This is what the Dallas headquarters of the restaurant chain looks like starting at 2 p.m. on any Friday, no matter what season it is. It's invaluable time. It's all year long, every Friday. I think we've started calling it Endless Fridays now. Caroline Masulo, in addition to being the company DJ, is VP of Marketing. After an hour of cocktails, everyone, including the CEO, heads out the door. Out on the lake, Masulo's able to get a head start on the weekend with her family. If it was a Wednesday afternoon at this time, where would you be? <laughs> at work. <laughs> so Probably like driving home from work, sitting in traffic, so this is a nice change for sure. Since Friday afternoons are typically the most unproductive part of the week, giving this time off doesn't necessarily cost companies that much. But the return can be priceless. I think it's less about the three hours of time and more so, at least for me, it says something about this brand and the way that they value individuals' personal time. So you are all of them. It's worth noting, this is a perk mostly reserved for white-collar workers. The staff at TGI Friday's restaurants certainly don't get the afternoon off. No matter how popular this perk becomes, there are some jobs where you simply can't take off on a Friday afternoon. Recording track, take three. Especially not if you work on a show that airs on Sunday mornings. Ahead, amusement parks. Just the ticket. Imagine spending many happy hours having fun here at the Children's Playhouse. Many of today's young people, older folks too, are attracted to a more extreme form of amusement, Faith Saley among them. For decades, amusement parks have been a staple of American summers, from the scent of fried sugar to stomach-churning rides. There's just something about them that brings out the kid in us. Is there anything more fun than a roller coaster ride? If it is, I haven't, I haven't met it yet. <laughs> Arthur Levine is a travel writer and theme park enthusiast. How many do you think you've ridden? You know, some people obsessively keep track. I don't really know. I'd venture a guess and say maybe Three, four, five hundred, I'm not really sure, but a lot. Let's just say a lot. Each year, more than 335 million people pack America's amusement parks. But as much as we might consider a visit to one of these parks an American pastime, the world's oldest amusement park is in, get this, Denmark. In the 16th century, yeah. what would this have looked like? Uh, forest, uh, nothing as trees, forest. Niels Eric Vinther is the director of Bakken. 
The park is now filled with traditional rides and games. But back when it was founded, 434 years ago, the original attraction was water. This well is where the amusement park uh, sprang from, yeah, as the, it were. The legend, the history, yeah. This natural spring attracted scores of nearby city dwellers eager for fresh water. Merchants and performers soon began entertaining the crowds, laying the foundation for amusement parks. It also inspired other cities to create their own escapist destinations, according to historian Jim Futrell. When the industry first started, it was um, in Europe in the Middle Ages when cities were just getting established. They were dirty, they were crowded. So entrepreneurs started uh, setting up what were called pleasure gardens on the outskirts of the cities. Then is now to provide an escape. But America took this entertainment to new heights. In 1893, the Ferris wheel debuted at the first Chicago World's Fair, proving there was a market for more extreme entertainment. Originally, the amusement parks tended to be started by transportation companies on the outskirts of the city to generate ridership on the evenings and weekends. But as those companies matured, they started selling off the parks to people who were operating it as their primary business rather than a sideline. And you saw the emergence of an industry, a, a global industry. As the years advanced, so did technology. Rides became faster, bigger, with one rising above all the rest. From the very earliest amusement parks, uh, roller coasters quickly emerged as being the signature attraction. You fast forward uh, 100 plus years later, and it still is by far the most popular ride at the amusement park. Why? Well, because they're just so thrilling. They provide a socially acceptable way to scream and to just have a lot of fun. So whether or not you think coasters are a scream, you have to admit amusement parks themselves have had quite the ride. A summer without a visit to an amusement park is what? Is not a summer at all. Coming up. There's no secret. Give people the freshest food and pile it high. Lobster. On a roll. You can enjoy it. Come on into the dining room. Mo Rocca this morning has food on his mind. To begin, let's share a lobster roll. Every summer, Route 1 in Wiscasset, Maine, becomes what locals call gridlock with view. Three lobster rolls, please. As pilgrims descend to feast on Red's classic lobster roll. I'm from Mount Vernon, Illinois, and I come to Wiscasset every year just to eat at Red's. Hello, hello. George and Allison Stollard came all the way from Austin, Texas. We're at lobster camp right now, which means going and getting lobster all around Maine for a week. And of course, for your onion rings ketchup, I also have an in-house blue cheese sauce. If you'd oh, like yes, to yes, yes, yes. Right Debbie Gagnon's father, Al Red Gagnon, bought the shack 40 years ago. Red's secret recipe? There's no secret. Give people the freshest food and pile it high. 
I'm just gonna grab a little more for this one. No, they don't hold back at Red's. Enjoy, honey. Here it is, right here. Each roll is stuffed with the meat of a whole lobster. So buttery and delicious, oh my gosh. Lobster, a once reviled seafood fed to prisoners, long ago clawed its way up from bottom feeder status on the menu. The first person to serve lobster in a sandwich may have been Harry Perry of Milford, Connecticut, who grilled one up in 1929. It became the hallmark of our restaurant. Wendy Weir is Harry Perry's granddaughter. We were known as the home of the famous lobster roll. Lobster rolls across Connecticut have been served hot ever since. The best. Today, the crustacean sensation is sweeping the nation. Then we create a Thai curry paste. Way over on the West lobster. Coast, Chef Brandon Keita's lobster roll takes Thai. on flavors from the Far East. So it has ginger, lemongrass, kaffir lime, garlic. At LA's Hinoki and the Bird. We don't have a real history of lobster rolls, so it's nice to be able to have freedom with creativity. And smack dab in the middle of the country, at Josh Toma's Smack Shack in Minneapolis, lobster rolls served cold are hot, don't you know? We go through about 2,000 pounds of lobster a week in the, in the summertime when we're busy. So we a ton of lobster a week. <laughs> Literally a ton of lobster a week. The bread's local. This is probably about a four pound. The lobster's flown in from Maine. People say, how far is the ocean from here? Well, the ocean is, you know, an hour and a half away. By like the Concorde. Well, by, you know. But the space shuttle. Uh, like two hours, okay, all right, all right. But a really ambitious lobster could make it here. If it went through the Atlantic, through the St. Lawrence Seaway. <laughs> Over millions of years, get here. When Toma first sold his roll out of a food truck seven years ago, Minnesotans were confused. I think oftentimes people would come up to the truck and think they were getting sushi. But soon enough, they took to it. So no pressure. But let's watch you take your first bite ever. <laughs> like a lobster to melted butter. Oh, oh, that's a small bite. She took a small bite. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Deliver your verdict when you're ready. Enjoy it. Savor, savor. Mm. <laughs> what do you think? Very good. And another lobster roll lover is born. Thank you for not saying it tastes like chicken. <laughs> oh, that one. Okay, take another bite. Will you welcome, please, Mr. Marlon Brandon. Still to come. Greetings, Mr. Hitchcock. Talking Very the nice. talk with Dick Cavett. So you're Jack Lemmon. Yes. <laughs> Plus, a summer song from the Isley Brothers. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it how's this for a conversation piece it's a writing nook and on the subject of conversation dick cavett he can talk with the best of them and that includes our lee cowan so where was famed cavett's cove where is that that's it I read at some point that uh, clothing was optional in Cavett's Cove on the beach. Well, you, you could wear it. <laughs> you could. If you wanted to. There are a lot of endearing stories like that that happened at this endearing place. Dick Cavett's oceanfront getaway 
in Montauk, Long Island. People fall in love with it. People are always asking me, watch, you'll ask if you can come back. <laughs> the house is historic. It was one of seven beach cottages designed back in the 1880s by flamboyant architect Stanford White. Cavett and his late wife, actress Carrie Nye, bought the house in 1966, just before his TV star went supernova. His talk show was often the talk of TV, and many of the celebrities Cavett hosted on stage, he also hosted out at that beach house, including Woody Allen, Lauren Bacall, even playwright Tennessee Williams. Tennessee said, <laughs> it's the most beautiful house I've ever seen in the North. <laughs> <laughs> but on one tragic night in 1997, a fire destroyed it all leaving only the brick chimney as a grim sentinel. And you can't imagine your house being gone. Every cell, I think, in your body, probably, if it could be seen and magnified, moves at that moment. Because you lost everything, right? Yeah, yeah. Cavett and Nye set about to rebuild it, but only had their memory and pictures to go by. Forensic architecture, they called it. And out of all those ashes came a near-exact replica of Stanford White's historic home. He would have liked it. He would have said, uh, I you think, did good, Dick. I think Stan <laughs> would have said, hey, Dick, you done good. <laughs> he did good in his career, too. He started as a comedy writer for The Tonight Show's Jack Parr in 1961, then continued writing for Johnny Carson, even doing a little stand-up himself. Do you ever sit home quietly by the fire rereading Dickens or... <laughs> when he finally got his own show in 1968 Can I tell one story parenthetically before getting to that? Sure He just shut up and let his guests talk Something his mentor Jack Parr had suggested I made the 10 best dressed list in Poland He said, uh, hey kid, when you're going to do this show don't, you don't, don't, don't do interviews Don't do interviews Don't do interviews Make it a conversation I think you do a, a yeoman's job. There's nobody else on television that does what you do. It landed in guests who rarely did other shows, like Marlon Brando, John Lennon, and Yoko Ono. So you're Jack Lemmon. Yes. <laughs> and you're oh, Fred Astaire. <laughs> or is it Orson Welles? I'm not Fred Astaire. <laughs> and the great Groucho Marx. Anybody can say something dirty and get a laugh. Mm -hmm. But say something clean and get a laugh. That requires a comedian. <laughs> I wasn't looking at you at the minute. I... No, I didn't. <laughs> stuff did happen. Intelligent stuff did get talked about. Politics got talked about. Social issues got talked about, which on most talk shows, that didn't happen. I just didn't make a point of that. I just thought the world is full of more things than show business. You choose to do the kind of show you choose to do. The conversation didn't even have to include Cavett. He got Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier to square off, not only verbally, but almost physically. Are they kidding? Boys and girls are dying. I didn't think they'd hit me, but I didn't know. Greetings, Mr. Hitchcock. How do you do? Very nice to see you. I have to say, though, sitting across from someone who made conversation on TV, the best it could be, is a little intimidating for me. 
to sit across Intimidating from you. for you? Because you're so good at this. Is that why you've stuttered and stammered the whole way That's through? That's exactly and... why I stuttered and stammered. <laughs> See, I'm doing it now. <laughs> you have a uh, gift, sir. Uh, okay, I dare them to cut this out. You are really good. Oh, well, coming really from you, good. coming from you, that, that means well, a lot. I say that to everybody, of course, but... <laughs> And there we have it. But perhaps his greatest back-and-forth chat was with Catherine Hepburn, who famously thought of talk shows as being mostly tactless. Do you want to hear the story yeah, the of my part. life? I presume that's why I'm here. She was wary because nothing in her experience had any real connection with sitting and talking. About herself. About herself. Move it out. Move it out. She made him move the furniture on the set. She told him his carpet was ugly. But Cavett kept her talking. Yes, you wouldn't shut up. <laughs> At one point, Hepburn even referenced that House of Cavett's back in Montauk, which she implied held the same romance as her own beach getaway across Long Island Sound in Connecticut. And each one of us has a secret, you know, and you go to Montauk and you try to rebuild your secret and I yeah. go to the mouth of the Connecticut River in my childhood and, and I try to rebuild mine. But after more than 50 years, the time has come, Cavett laments, to put his seaside treasure and the 20 acres of moorlands around it up for sale. Asking price, 62 million and change. So why after all these years do you want to, do you want to sell this Perfect place. I don't want to sell it. You don't want to? No. You'd have to be a fool uh, to want to sell it. The home's charm never wavered, but at age 80, Cavett's enthusiasm for its upkeep did. Even fairy tales, he reasons, have to come to an end. Just like summer. It's just a new chapter? That could be. Let's, let's call it that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ahead. So this, this is a little boy. Uh-huh. Bugs. Just nice scratching the surface. Room. I mean, isn't that a face that everybody would love? We've moved on to the garden. The perfect place to stop and smell the flowers. When you're not fending off the bugs, that is. Serena Ulchel gives us the buzz. How often do you come out just to check on these guys and have a oh, look? Oh, about once a month. Have you been stung by these oh, yeah. guys? You could say biologist Justin Schmidt has been bitten by the bug. Actually, a lot of bugs. They are quite toxic. They're they about are. as toxic as a rattlesnake. I kind of make the analogy that if you took a rattlesnake, broke it into 500 pieces and added wings, you got honeybees. <laughs> He's devoted his life. This, this is a little boy. Uh-huh. And, well, his body to studying insect nice stings and view. venoms. I mean, isn't that a face that everybody would love? At his lab in Tucson, Arizona. How many times have you been stung? Probably somewhere between one and 2,000 times. He's been stung so many times that he figured all that pain could be helpful. So he came up with what he calls in his recent book, the Schmidt Scale of Pain. Stings from 84 different insects are rated on a scale from 1 to 4 and accompanied by some imaginative descriptions. So people would be surprised to see all the different descriptions because sometimes it's a hot pain, sometimes it's an itchy pain, a burning. 
Yeah, exactly. They're, they're, they're quite different. Like the tarantula hawk is an electrifying one. It feels like you, you know, how the electric power line break off and land on you. Ah, so you describe the sweat bee as light, ephemeral, almost fruity. What are you talking about? I'm talking about it's just, just a little tiny thing, very light. It's almost like a teasing pain. It's just, hey, open your arm up, let me out. I, I don't mean any harm. And the harvester ants found just outside his front door, they're an excruciating three out of four on his scale. Well, this sting, to me, is one of the more painful of all of them. It feels like somebody's reaching under your skin and ripping out tendons and muscles. But Schmidt isn't just studying what the stings feel like. He's also trying to understand why insects sting in the first place. Insects are tiny, tiny little things, and things that want to eat them are big. So you got this basic problem. How do you defend a little guy, a really little guy, against a really big guy? And the sting turns out to be the solution. So while it may not feel like it to us, most insect stings are purely defensive. And if they stung us, yep. we say, oh, this is the trouble, then they leave this, this stinger is left in your skin. Right. And what it does is it has a little flag on it. Right. And this flag is like a sponge. It's got chemicals in it. It's huh. this kind but of odor. But it's communicating back to them. Oh, yeah, that's what it tells them. It's, huh. it's an alarm pheromone that says, hey, gals, yeah. get alert. There's bad news. I found the trouble. It's right here. Insects can be a nuisance, to be sure. But there is a silver lining to all that pain. It turns out stings can be useful in finding better ways of dealing with pain itself. And one of the projects I'm working on right now is trying to alleviate chronic pain in human beings. We have cancer or, or many other diseases that have chronic pain. And the solutions we have are very blunt. So Schmidt is using the powerful but harmless venom of the fearsome-looking tarantula hawk to better understand how pain works in the body and ideally help us find ways to treat it more effectively. We can now take tissue culture, which has the nerves that cause pain, and then we say, okay, we can put something that makes the, the tissue culture indicate pain. Now we can do the chemistry and pharmacology of what can I put on that tissue that stops it. As far as treating the pain of getting stung by an insect at a summer picnic, he's got a tip. Salt and a little bit of water just to make it into kind of a cool paste. What does salt do to a sting? We don't know. That's one of the fascinating things. It's kind of one of these, these home remedies. The venom actually gets injected fairly slowly into you. But buzz off, all you daredevils. Justin Schmidt has a warning. I don't want you to be like me. I don't want you to go out and get stung. I'm getting stung for, you know, scientific reasons, not just entertainment. But I do get the sneaking suspicion that you love these stinging bugs. Oh, absolutely. How can you not adore these? I mean, you look at their life histories, so you can see the beauty of what they do, why they do it, how they do it. It's just so fascinating. I just realized I've, I've drunk half this bottle. Yes. There, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's and you're at work. <laughs> The It Wine, Rosé, next. The fertile North Fork of New York's Long Island is a destination for wine lovers. 
everybody has their own story about how they want their vineyard to go and what they want to do, and ours is, you know, our story's pink. What distinguishes Michael Croto's vineyard? It's the nation's only vineyard dedicated exclusively to rosé. Tastes like a day at the beach. Right, you know, right, like right. It's become so popular that Croto sometimes runs dry of his exquisitely dry rosé weeks before summer's end. They would call that probably salmon or melon, uh -huh. whereas this is almost like a pale peach kind of color. But back in the 70s and 80s, rosé was considered little more than sweet swill, not taken seriously at all. Bring it on home. Rosé seemed sort of like JV red wine, you know, red wine that wasn't trying. Catherine Cole has written a book about the wine with a surprisingly rich history. People think of rosé as a lesser wine or a cheap wine, when in fact, for centuries, the czars of Russia, the popes, the kings of France, they all preferred rosé to red, and red was for the peasants. Today, it seems rosé is for everyone. In 2015, sales grew by 60%. So no, it's not just your mother drinking it. Actually, 47% of all rosé consumers are males. So I think there's something really beautiful about a guy just being really confident and saying, hey, I drink pink wine. I'm proud. I'm proud to be a pink wine drinker. And those gorgeous hues have helped to make rosé a huge success on social media like Instagram. Yeah. I like the Magellans of rosé. Well, you know what I mean? Constantly forging into new, new worlds of rosé. Or Elon Musk. We're the mm -hmm. Elon Musks of rosé. Yes. Brothers David and Tanner Cohen and comedian Josh Ostrowski are the trio behind White Girl Rosé. Rosé is kind of like the cousin of ill repute of wine, sort of. It's a little more fun. It takes itself a little less seriously. White Girl was inspired by the fictional online character they created, Babe Walker, who tweets about her white girl problems. She's a girl that would love to drink rosé for a living. Their rosé is not exactly high-end, and they're okay with that. People of an older generation are like a wine in a can, but like, it tastes really good. Oh, there we go. This is what we're talking about. It does taste good. It yeah. does. <laughs> <laughs> what is the future of rosé? The rosé future is anything you can imagine. We're doing rosé kegs. Yeah. I mean, it, it really, the, the sky is the limit. Rosé is here to stay. Everything's coming up. Rosé. Wow. Oh, I see what you're doing. Wow. A fan appreciation. Coming up. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This Long Island mansion dates to an era when there was no air conditioning. You kept cool with open windows, sitting in the shade, or with this, a hand fan. From Japan, Lucy Kraft has sent us this postcard. It's the all-purpose prop in traditional Japanese theater. It heightens the pageantry of shrine festivals and gilds the mystique of a dancing geisha. But even out of the limelight, the hand fan plays a starring role throughout life in Japan. 
on a sweltering summer afternoon, Japanese cool off much the same way their ancestors did centuries ago. They come down to the waterfront for some cooling breezes, dress up in their cotton yukata kimonos, and pack that essential summer accessory, the hand fan. 33-year-old Takamasa Hori flaunts the large economy size. This isn't just for cooling, he says. It's meant to say, I'm Japanese. Personal fashion statements aside, fans have evolved to become handheld billboards. At this electronics retailer, fans are given away free, advertising air conditioners. While flat round fans, or uchiwa, originated in China, Japanese are credited with inventing folding fans more than 1,000 years ago. Known here as ogi, folding fans come in a staggering variety of sizes and styles. Hand fan shop Ibasen has been plying its wares since the 16th century. Nearby, Kyosendo was founded before the American Civil War. Proprietor Chiyoko Saiki says businessmen like to give fans as gifts. Fans are compact but unfurl to reveal a Japanese painting. In the highly stylized world of Japan's oldest theater form, called no, scenery and props are minimal, so hand fans do a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to conveying drama. Masahiro Nakamura, whose acting career began at age three, said his fans are gaudy, costing thousands of dollars, yet few in his audience will ever appreciate the finery. He says, in no, fans are almost never used as fans, they are meant to represent swords, or shields, or parasols. Hiroshi Matsui is one of the last fan makers left in Tokyo, handcrafting Japanese washi paper and bamboo into delicate art. You're 70 years old, you're still putting in 16-hour days. Isn't there an easier way to make these fans? There are 30 steps to making a fan, he says. If you cut corners, it always shows up in the final product. For the Japanese, hand fans embody the promise of life itself, the many possibilities for good fortune, unfolding, literally, right before your eyes. Still to come, on stage, with the Isley Brothers. Sweet days of summer, the jasmine's in bloom. July is dressed up and playing a tune. It's a Sunday at the shore, and here again is Jane Pauley. Perfect song, perfect setting for the Isley Brothers. They've been at it for 60 years. Maurice Dubois has their story. It's a safe guess. Whatever your age, the Isley Brothers are the soundtrack of your life. Remember when you first heard this one? You know you make me wanna kick my heels up and Ron Isley remembers everything. Audience would go crazy. They would go crazy and we would go crazy with them. How about this one? It's your And where were you when you first heard the sublimely sexy Between the Sheets? 
between the sheets. Well, that's your business. How many babies are walking around because of that song? The generation. <laughs> Generations have kept the Isley Brothers on top of the charts for six decades and counting. It's something that we worked on for all those years, you know, to want to be number one, you want to be on top. So that's been very important to us. That voice, it's still perfect, it's beautiful. Some God, man, I, you know, I can tell when I'm, I, I want to hit a note and say, what? Well, it was easier five years ago. 76-year-old <laughs> Ron Isley started performing at the age of two. I trust in God. Jesus Churches came first, but their mom warned them that to survive in the business, they needed to do it all, sing everything from gospel to R&B to country western to pop. Isleys have come and gone. And that's Ernie right there on the end. And this guy? That's me. Ron and brother Ernie are now the two remaining group members. Let me give you a chance. Uh-huh. At home oh. with Ron in St. Louis, the stories ricochet around the room. I knew he wouldn't believe that. <laughs> Take the time they asked an unknown guitar player named Jimi Hendrix to join the band. I'm 11 years old at the time. Never heard anybody play a guitar like that. He played and lived with them for two years. How about the story of Twist and Shout, which they released in 1962. One year later, it became a huge hit for the Beatles. Ernie Isley says he ran into Paul McCartney a few years ago, and... I said something like, Paul, you and Ringo and George and John, you guys are just wonderful. And he said, Ernie, if it were not for the Isley Brothers, the Beatles would still be in Liverpool. And one more story. In 2006, Ron Isley was sentenced to three years in federal prison for tax evasion, not long after he'd married one of his backup singers, Candy Johnson. Still, there's a happy ending. You go on lockdown. How hard was that? They were our biggest fans. <laughs> Listening to these stories and doing entertainment for them. Me and my son went down every weekend and saw him Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It was a time for us to grow, to stretch, to learn, and it made our love for each other much deeper. And something to share. There's no other singer more important than Ronnie. Which brings us to Carlos Santana. The legendary guitar player who brought a fusion of Latin, African and pop music to audiences, and his wife, drummer Cindy Blackman Santana. I grew up listening to Ronald Isley as well, and I also love him. <laughs> when Cindy and I got married, that's the first song that we danced to, uh, The Look of Love. The Look of Love. 
In 2012, their paths crossed, and Santana took full advantage of the chance encounter. So I immediately said, hi, how you doing? Can we do an album together? The result is just out. It's a family affair. Carlos Santana, the Isleys, plus their wives on vocals. Tracy Isley. I can go and see a show with Carlos. I can see Isley Brothers. But when the two of them came together, it's like, wow, you don't see that every day. A four-day collaboration in the studio, years in the making. And to hear Carlos Santana tell it, their timing was just perfect. He is the king of singers. Because no one sculptures notes like Ronnie. Certain singers, they have this other gift of making a note become the Pacific Ocean or a galaxy. One note. One note and unites people. For Ron Isley, the result is a little bit of heaven. I said, man, you should become a preacher. <laughs> and he said, one day I'm, I'm going to have a church, you know. And I said, I will, I will come to that church. Did I mention I'm not outdoorsy? Man Overboard. We set sail with Jim Gaffigan. Ahead. Summer means boating for countless people here on Long Island and around the country. Our Jim Gaffigan has some thoughts on that. Summer is here, and so are the boats. I'm not a boat person. I'm not anti-boat. I'm not afraid of the water. I don't get seasick. I just don't understand what the big deal of being on a boat is. We're floating on water, how exciting. I'm aware boats have and remain an important form of transportation. I appreciate some people make a living using a boat. I even understand that some musicians and celebrities enjoy cavorting on boats to impress fans. It's the other boat owners that I don't understand. The seemingly normal people who own boats. Those weirdos. If you're not using your boat for work, as a place of residence, or to impress shallow friends, why do you own a boat? Paying insane amounts of money so you can float around in open water, drinking beer in direct sunlight, while you eat soggy sandwiches from a cooler, has very little appeal to me. My sister Pam has a boat on Lake Michigan, and from what I can tell, there are roughly seven days during a Chicago summer she can use it. It seems like Macy's Thanksgiving floats are used more often annually. Some people enjoy taking their boat out, whatever that means, then eating in a marina. If you're unaware what a marina is, it's a boat parking lot filled with other weirdos who shovel hundreds of dollars into docking fees and boat maintenance while the polar ice caps melt. Anyway, did I mention I'm not outdoorsy? Welcome to 93 Little Hobart Street. Coming up, The Glass Castle, from Best Seller. You really think we'll build it? Of course. 
to summer screen. The greenhouse here is truly a glass castle. The glass castle Martha Teichner now tells us about is a movie based on a memoir that touched millions of readers. The last time Jeanette Walls was here was right after her inspiring best-selling memoir, The Glass Castle, came out in 2005. The house is gone. The foundations are gone. I can see the remnants of what used to be the stairs, but I found some things, and I'm pretty sure that this was one of Mom's art supplies. It was how she overcame the poverty, the chaos of her childhood, here on this hillside above Welch, a struggling coal mining town in southern West Virginia. Welcome to 93 Little Hobart Street. That the book, and now a film based on it, portrays. I will never forget it. I tried. <laughs> I tried and it didn't work. So you remember, not out of anger, but out of gratitude, that you can start out a place like that and make your way out. In spite of her parents, and because of them. My father, Rex, was one of the most charismatic human beings I've ever known, and also one of the most brilliant. He was also a desperate alcoholic. My mother, Rosemary, is also brilliant, creative, and I don't think has a maternal bone in her body. Would you rather me make you some food that'll be gone in an hour, or finish this painting that'll last forever? Played in the movie by Naomi Watts, Rosemary Walls preferred painting to tending her four children or working. All these walls are gone, placed with three-inch glass, 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 glass. Rex Walls, played by Woody Harrelson, couldn't keep a job, but dreamed big of building a fabulous solar-powered glass castle. You really think we'll build it? Of course. Jeanette was a true believer until the foundation she helped dig became a garbage pit. We didn't have indoor plumbing. I'd go to school dirty. I didn't have, uh, I didn't have lunches. And you literally went through the garbage to forage food? Yes. And then once I became the editor of the school newspaper, I had a key to the school. And I went to the school cafeteria and just took the food they threw away. Oh. Look at this! Oh, no. The maroon wave! <laughs> and there, and there, there you are! There I am. Yeah, yeah. She put together the paper here at the Welch Daily News. The experience was transformative. It was the portal out for me. It was the time and place that I realized I had a future. When Walls was 17, she ran away to New York City and talked herself into the prestigious Barnard College. She graduated with honors. I so desperately needed what Barnard had to offer me. And then went to work here at New York Magazine. It was such a life changer because it wasn't just part of the real world, it was the big times. Her job, ironically, society gossip columnist. I just thought if they knew who I was, the game would be up. I was this white trash kid reporting on the world's most famous, powerful people. She had a fancy address on Park Avenue and was silent about her background. Yeah, these are all my tree. See, these are my, this is my tree book. 
But by then, her parents had shown up in New York City and were living as squatters in a derelict building on this block. And I was going to some fabulous party, and my taxi got stuck in traffic, and I looked out the window, and I saw a homeless woman rooting through the garbage, and I realized it was my mother. And I was so mortified that I ducked down and I hid. That story opens the glass castle. It sold six million copies. New York Magazine, this is Jeanette Walls. In the movie, which opens in two weeks, Academy Award winner Brie Larson is the grown-up Jeanette. I've learned a lot from her. Being open about who you are and your story, the book has sparked people to reflect on their own life, to come to terms with their past. As Jeanette Walls has done. These days, she lives with her husband, John Taylor, also a writer, on their 200-acre farm in Virginia. I'm Martha. How do you do, Martha? I'm Rosemary. Nice to meet you. She built a small house for her mother, who at 83 still paints and makes no apologies for the way she raised her children. They had an interesting life. They had experiences nobody else had. So why in the world complain? That is what we call the Rex box. Her father died in 1994. The plans for the glass castle are long since disappeared. But Jeanette Walls no longer minds that it was only ever a dream. In another way, though, I feel that it kind of has been built because it was never really about the glass castle. It was more just a home, a place where you belong. Let's go. Let's go. And you've got that. I've got that. And more. Come on. Come on. Go. Next. Excuse me, I've just eaten so much custard today. We can get you more. We can get you suitably overdosed. <laughs> Last licks. I was real treating everyone today. Good. Good. Tom Linscott, the owner of Gillis's Frozen Custard, welcomes everyone to his establishment. Summer day in Milwaukee. Where else would we be? Just don't confuse his product with that other frozen dessert. What is the worst thing I could call this? Well, you know, if you call it ice cream, you're not going to do real well. <laughs> Tom's not being a stickler. Frozen custard is not ice cream. The biggest difference? Custard uses more eggs, yolks included, making for a sinfully creamy experience. It's especially popular in Milwaukee. No one is quite sure why, but the city has the highest concentration of frozen custard shops in the world. Gillis's is the oldest, serving since 1938. Custard's first stand, if you will. Are you raising her on custard? We sure are. Several pints of Gillies in our freezer right now. <laughs> Former commissioner of baseball Bud Selig is a regular here. The favorite son is careful not to play favorites. I love frozen custard and I love ice cream, so I, I, I love them both. Wow, that's like loving the Red Sox and the Yankees. Well, I know. And how's this for a double play? Two chocolate shakes. Legendary baseball announcer, funny man, and former player Bob Euchre just a bit outside. is also a fan. I mean, I got custard, free custard, every time I got a hit, so that was about once a month, so. Euchre has a theory on how his hometown became custard central. You don't get custard on the coast like you get in the Midwest. You can't, because the cows 
in California are too hot. Cows in the Midwest in the winter shake and shiver. That's what gives the custard the air. Your first scoop, you like it. And about 30 seconds in, I was still believing you. Yeah, well. Actually, frozen custard as we know it was invented in Coney Island, New York in 1919. It migrated west with the Chicago World's Fair in 1933 and put down roots. How long have you been eating frozen custard? Well, I'll, I'll be 68 in September, and I'm pretty sure I had my first frozen custard at about two years old. Across town, Leon's frozen custard is another favorite. So what's the deal with Milwaukee and frozen custard? Well, there's more of it here. Second generation owner Ron Schneider really likes talking about custard. Milwaukee and Wisconsin in the early to mid-1930s. I was very interested in what Ron had to say, but I was even more interested in my butter pecan cone. Appeals to everyone, so I feel good about serving this good a product. Excuse me, I've just eaten so much custard today. You should have come here first. No, I'm fine. I'll be fine. I'll be okay. We can get you more. We can get you suitably overdosed. <laughs> we may never be able to explain why Milwaukee makes such great custard, but to taste is to believe. When God wants the good stuff, he asks for custard. God is in Milwaukee. <laughs> <laughs> Chilling with Mo Rocca. And next week, here on Sunday Morning. The Money Issue. I'm Jane Pauley. I hope you've enjoyed our field trip. Please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Diva Adaris. 
what is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.